back in Luke chapter 8. If you want to turn there now, we would be picking up at verse 26, but we'll hold that a little bit loosely and you'll see why in a few moments. We landed a passage today where Jesus encounters the demoniac. It's a renowned passage. If you remember where Jesus casts out some 2,000 demons from this man, and although we might consider it urgent to learn from this passage how to exercise a demon, it might be something urgent in our lives that we need to run home and do to, uh, to a pet quickly. Um, I'm going to delay uh, on that and observe more closely Jesus and the demoniac just one week from today. There's cons- uh, a lot of confusion, Lord, uh, folks, about uh, how to exercise demons. I hope we can at least alleviate some of the confusion today. Uh, instead, I'm going to do a more topical message on just the biblical understanding of demons or our doctrines of demons, the doctrines that we formulate in our relationship of understanding from the Bible. And we need to formulate, folks, correct understanding about demons. Biblical doctrines of demons. Because much fanfare has been made about exorcisms. Of course, Hollywood has well exploited the idea of doing exorcisms in movies. In fact, if we were to be honest, many of us would probably think Uh, more quickly to what we've seen in movies in the past, probably from years ago with some of us, about how exorcisms are performed rather than looking to Scripture and what we've seen in the Scripture about exorcisms. And being good Bible students, we probably already know from movies like The Exorcist, if you ever saw that uh, when you were younger, as an unbeliever more likely, um... A proper exorcism, we would all know, involves a cross and candles and a Gregorian chant. You know, all the stuff that uh, Hollywood provides. And this has caused some churches to be wrought with confusion about exorcisms. For instance, some denominations would suggest that if your local church is sufficiently engaged in spiritual warfare well, then your pastor is going to be doing exorcisms regularly. Hopefully every week if you're really in spiritual battle. The same groups don't find it at all suspicious that Ephesians chapter 6, likely the most detailed portion of Scripture about spiritual warfare, we sang a song about it uh, today, just two songs before we ended, uh, for the message Uh, about Ephesians 6 and spiritual warfare, there it doesn't even hint at the idea that a Christian today is to exercise a demon or give any instructions on how to perform an exorcism. In fact, after a cursory examination of the Old Testament, a quick examination, I was unable to recall even one occasion when in the Old Testament a saint successfully, or even attempted to exercise a demon. Do you find that at all interesting? Is it not fascinating that when the Son of God arrives on the ministry scene in the Bible, suddenly 
we have records of multiple exorcisms. We should probably ask ourselves, what has changed? What has changed? In fact, even with this demoniac that we'll look at next week, you'll be hard-pressed to find any inkling there that Jesus is supplying us uh, a process to exercise demons. Uh, You know, a a how-to, follow these instructions and you will successfully exercise demons. never implies you or I are supposed to seek out a confrontation with or exercise a demon. That's not what this passage is teaching. As Luke, the gospel historian, records the reaction of the demons in the demonic realm, really, in this confrontation with the Son of God, he doesn't suggest in any way that we possess the same authority that Jesus had in confronting these demons. Luke reveals that Jesus possesses the authority to cast out demons. That's the entire point of the passage. Entire point. Nothing more. Jesus exercises unhindered authority over demons. That's the point of the passage. He possesses the power to cast those same demons and the authority to send them into the abyss. That's code for hell. The place of torment we'll look at next week. You and I don't possess that authority either. We don't have the authority to cast demons into the abyss. We haven't been delegated that authority. We'll discuss that very closely next week. Um, Then we'll later observe in chapter 9 how Jesus delegates that authority to his disciples, the twelve, before sending them out to preach the kingdom of God. Luke 9 verse 1 records Jesus specifically giving the twelve power over demons and disease. Do you know what that suggests, folks? It suggests to us that before Jesus gave them that power, they didn't possess that power. It isn't a latent quality that just needs to be massaged in the life of the believer. It had to be given to the disciples. Christ gave it to them. I don't know about you. Jesus has not delegated to me power over the demonic realm. He's never given me that power. He's never bestowed upon me the authority, as Luke 9 verse 1 says, the authority over all demons and all diseases. All. The twelve were given authority over all. I don't have the faintest idea where any Christian would acquire such spiritual power or authority today. Uh, Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, if you remember, Um, proved, he proved you can't just walk down to Walmart and purchase that spiritual authority. I've never seen it, at least the last time I checked, available on Amazon. So I don't know where a person would acquire that authority today. At the same time, demonic activity has existed, it has been active since the Garden of Eden. And it remains active still today. Satan and his evil minions, they exercised, exercised power to deceive mankind throughout the period of the Old Testament, throughout all those books before the arrival of Christ. 
But suddenly now, after some 4,000 years, there arrives a man who exercises authority over them. Something has changed. And that man is not soliciting money on television. He's not flying around in jets. You follow me? That man is Jesus Christ, and at his arrival, something is drastically different. Now now the demons are on the defensive. Jesus encounters this demoniac. It's not like the situation with the seven sons of Siva. It's not like that that we read together earlier, where one man possessed by a single demon came out and put a spanking on seven Jewish exorcists. It was to the point that they fled naked, Scripture said, unclothed and wounded. A single man and a single demon overpowered seven men while declaring, Jesus I recognize and Paul I know. Who are you? Who are you? The demon asks. Similar to Jesus' miracles of the apostles, uh, Paul, Peter, the like, they were also very extraordinary. So extraordinary with Paul that in Acts 19, verse 2, we are told that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and that diseases left them and that spirits, evil spirits went out. In Acts 5, verse 15, they were laying people on the streets. Laying them on the streets so that merely the shadow of Peter could fall on them. And we know that people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, we're talking demons again, they were all being healed. You notice that? They were all being healed. Every single one of them. So to any who would suggest that that nothing has changed since the apostolic period, the apostolic era, there are some that suggest that, that that all powers displayed by Jesus and His disciples are all available to us today just as they were to them. I ask one thing, I beg you for your handkerchief. And after service, I will immediately take that handkerchief and we'll go down to Tradition Medical Center and we'll see if all are healed. If all are healed. But something's changed, folks. Something has changed. True apostles, which included Paul, possessed this authority because Jesus specifically gave them the power to heal and to cast out demons. Jesus gave them that authority. These miracles, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12 states, were the signs of a true apostle. A true apostle. Such powers and wonders were signs that Jesus bestowed upon them so that people could distinguish who were the true apostles from the ones who were the false apostles. The ones who possessed the true gospel message from the ones who carried a damning message. Those apostles actually sent by Christ would display the same miracles of Christ. For Jesus said after His resurrection, this is in Mark 16 now, these signs will accompany those who believed 
In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Jesus said this statement directly to his apostles. The events of casting out demons, speaking in unlearned foreign languages, handling serpents, healing the sick, are all miracles in Scripture that are recorded as having been fulfilled, having been fulfilled by those same apostles that he was speaking to, and then Paul. Of course, Paul, the one untimely born. Such signs would distinguish them from the false apostles. In Scripture, there's no record of the apostles ever delegating the same authority to anyone else. In their epistles, Paul, the apostle, uh, you might know, wrote several of them. Though they often write about demonic activity, we see that in, in the writings of Peter, we see it in Jude, Uh, Lots of warnings about the devil, uh, yet Christians are never given instructions about how to accomplish such miracles or to cast out demons. In all those letters to the church, the pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus, no instructions on how to accomplish an exorcism. You see where I'm coming from? You and I have not been delegated this authority by Jesus. We have not been given this power, nor are we commanded to perform the miraculous healings and signs that appear throughout the rest of this book, Luke. Miracles and signs were never provided as an indication of of a higher spirituality or the mark of Christian maturity. They are provided by Scripture as an indication of apostolic authority. That's what they were given for. They were signs of a true apostle. So I hope you follow me. Because as we finish this chapter, chapter 8, then we enter into chapter 9, we're going to begin to see that not only Christ is performing miracles, but we're going to start to observe Him delegating this authority and power to His disciples. He's going to bestow upon them the power and authority for the same miracles. First, it's going to be the twelve. Then in chapter 10, it's going to temporarily include, at least temporarily include, the 70 that are sent out in the name of Christ. Scripture never suggests it includes you and me. Never suggests that. Miracles were the signs of an apostle, as I said. A true apostle had to have seen the risen Christ. Bar none. 1 Corinthians 9.1 and Acts 1 verse 22 had to have seen the risen Christ. The apostolic office is closed. The office of a prophet is also closed because a prophet spoke for God and today we do not add to his word beyond what is written in the book. We don't add to that. We don't speak for God beyond what is in the holy book. So the office of apostle is closed because no one... Here has seen the risen Christ. The office of a prophet is closed because no one is speaking beyond what the Bible teaches. Speaking for God, by the way. Here's the point. Even though the offices of apostle and prophet appear on the list 
in Ephesians 4, verse 11, that, that list of offices in the church, they're, they're alongside evangelist and pastor and teacher. Just because they're on that list doesn't mean there are still apostles and prophets alive today. They were then when it was written, and there were people who met the criteria. Those offices are closed. Again, nobody meets the criteria today of seeing the risen Christ. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation of our faith, Christ himself, the cornerstone, right? We're not still laying the foundation of the faith. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10 says that we are believers today building on the foundation that was already laid by the apostles and prophets. We're now building the church, the people of God, on the foundation that the apostles and prophets laid way back at the beginning of the church. Likewise, merely because the lists of spiritual giftedness, which include miracles and healings, just because they appear in Scripture listed beside the other gifts of the Holy Spirit, this alone does not suggest that those particular gifts are still active today. Just as we still don't still have apostles and prophets today, some of those gifts that were particular or peculiar to apostles and prophets are not in effect today. They were never provided as marks to distinguish the common everyday Christian. They were given to identify apostles. We don't see terminal patients in the OR or in the emergency room or in our homes and walk by them to cast our shadow upon them. It does not happen in the same way today. We don't hand them our handkerchief or our apron. How proud and arrogant would that be? You never see people healed that way today. This is the theological basis, folks, as to why Port St. Lucie Bible Church is cessationist. That the miracle gifts, the miracle sign gifts have ceased. Um, it suggests, suggests the, uh, the miraculous apostolic signs have ceased because the apostolic era is closed. None are alive today. Does that suggest, you, you who have been here for a while, does that suggest that we don't believe that God heals today? Say no. No, that doesn't suggest that at all. Often that is the charge of Christians who don't believe the apostles, apostle office is still open. They say, well, you don't believe that God does miracles. That is inaccurate. That's not true. What it means is that we believe God miraculously heals the same way he did previously before Christ. Before the period of Jesus and the apostles. He does so as he wills. And in response to prayer like he did with King Hezekiah. Therefore God does not need. Nor has he ever needed faith healers to fly around in private jets. God has never needed that folks. Hezekiah. Isaiah the prophet was there in that day. And Hezekiah doesn't even get his healing through Isaiah. He prayed to God and God found it in his good pleasure to, to uh, remove uh, the ailment that he had uh, that was killing him and he lived another 15 years. 
That's the way it worked before, most of the time before um, Jesus came on the scene. God healed long before he gave the gifts of healing and prophecy. Even before he gave the power over demons. But he gave these gifts specifically to identify men during a temporary period to distinguish those who were his true apostles until the New Testament writings were completed. What does all this have to do with formulating our doctrines of demons, we might ask? Well, it means that doctrinally Christians today are to recognize we don't exercise authority over them. We don't have power over them. We're never commanded to seek them out. We're not guaranteed we have any power to cast them out. Christians don't behave, you know, like that television series? I hope you haven't watched it. Supernatural? You know where those two guys go around in that 67 Impala? It's a nice car. And they go around, they're the demon hunters, right? And they're seeking them out and trying to expel demons with all kinds of potions and and creative ideas and other things. That's not Christ's church. No. No, that's not us. I don't suggest a series. Great car. We don't inherently possess the supernatural powers that have never been delegated to us by Jesus. Performing exorcisms is not a latent quality that Christians have that we just need to cultivate. We just need to learn how and we just need to uh, become better at. They were miracles. Those miracles were of an apostolic quality. Only apostles, on rare occasions, very close associates to the apostles. Barnabas, one's very close, Stephen, first martyr of the church, those very close to the apostles during the earliest period of the church. Those who were used to, uh, to authentically speak for Christ. Have a few situations like that with the prophets in the Old Testament. Folks, we don't have that power in ourselves. You might say, you know, okay, yawn. What's this got to do with all of us? What does it matter? Should it matter to the Christian? Should it matter to the church? If we acknowledge that Christ had this authority and he only delegated this authority during the apostolic time period, why then does it matter? I'll give you one reason it matters. Christians have been increasingly distracted with sensationalism. Sensationalism. In fact, I've seen online where continuationists, those are, that's a term for people who believe that the same apostolic gifts continue today. They're continuationists. We're cessationists. We believe they have ceased by the evidence that we see in the world. They believe that it continues to fully function. All the powers and miracles that Jesus and the apostles had are still available to Christians today. They suggest that Christians and churches have to provide something for visitors to see in order for them to believe. Have you ever heard that? You've been on YouTube? We have to provide people with something to see or they're never going to believe in Jesus. 
bad theology. Really bad theology. So they claim that that miracles and healings and exorcisms, even of of people in their own church, every week they're exercising some demon, even from those in their own church. All kinds of bizarre formulas they have for doing that. Um, Some will have granny um, weekly get up out of the same wheelchair week after week. They'll babble in undiscernible languages. Congregations will cheer about how the Holy Spirit is moving. Wow, look how, look at all of this. So in these churches, in these circles, the church becomes a display of miracles. But what do we know? We know Christians do not demand a show. We don't have to see anything to believe. We walk by faith, not by sight. By faith we have been saved through, or by grace we have been saved through faith. Demanding a miraculous sign of any kind is always portrayed in Scripture as the opposite of faith. The Pharisees were demanding signs from Jesus all the time. They didn't believe. They even got to see miracles. They still didn't believe. So the problem comes when the preaching of God's word, which actually God does use to save people, that is the one and only medium that God uses to save people, the preaching of the gospel, the problem comes when the word of God is set aside or overshadowed or marginalized to make room for spectacular displays of acting. That's when the problem comes. See, miracles never saved anyone, folks. Pharisees witnessed numerous miracles, including exorcisms, yet still did not believe in Jesus. They claimed Jesus performed these exorcisms by the power of Beelzebul. The sight of seeing that happen did not save them. Father Abraham told the rich man in Hades, you remember that story? That if his brothers... The rich man said, if my brothers could just, if you could send someone back from the dead to my brothers, then they believe. What does Abraham say? They won't believe the law and the prophets, meaning the scriptures. If they don't believe the scriptures, neither will they believe if someone is raised from the dead. Miracles don't save. Never have saved. I don't, I don't have to enter a room of demon-possessed people in order to authenticate or prove anything in a ministry. Christians don't seek out confrontations with demons. We understand, we realize, we don't have power over them. God does. We've not been delegated that authority. Just as those seven sons of Siva had no authority for what they were doing. Job assures us, however, that God has full, complete authority over Satan. He's on a short leash. God has unhindered, complete authority over the demons. Full authority. We do not. We do not. Jesus did not delegate his disciples' power over demons because God somehow had temporarily lost control 
and he needed the 12 to step in. No. Jesus gave them this power as evidence they were his true disciples. That's what the power is given to them for, and they used it for his glory. They used it to alleviate suffering. They used it to... Um, as an authentication while the books of the New Testament were still be written before the, before the full revelation of Scripture was complete. It was evidence they were legitimate apostles. Paul was always foremost concerned about the preaching of the gospel. He wanted nothing to distract from the preaching of the gospel. In fact, at one point he even said, God did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Paul did not come to confront demons, but to preach the gospel. Preaching is the only way anyone ever gets saved. Anything that distracts from the preaching of the word is satanic. In fact, in Acts chapter 16... This is immediately after Lydia was saved when God opened her heart to receive the gospel spoken by Paul. Same way everybody gets saved, by hearing the word of God. Immediately after Paul, uh, immediately after that, Paul led her to a place of prayer, we're told in Acts 16. And as they were going to that place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination, she was possessed, kept following Paul for many Days. You remember that scene? For many days saying, These men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And the scripture says that she was greatly annoying Paul for many days. That's more than three. Paul allowed this to go on, just being annoyed. Why didn't he cast that demon out on day one? You ever think about that? He had the authority, he had the ability, as God so willed. I think there are at least three reasons. One, Paul knew God was in sovereign control of that girl's demon and that God wasn't beholden to Paul in order to remove that demon. God can do what God's going to do. Number two, Paul's proving that he didn't have to cast out demons in order for God's people like Lydia to be saved. I don't have to do that. All he had to do was what he did with Lydia, speak the word of God to her. And three, Paul says, you know what? The uh, the legitimacy of my ministry, what I'm doing, what I've been called to do, and what I've been called to preach, does not rely on feats of sensationalism. Only thing it relies on is the preaching of of God's word. That's it. Paul's delay in casting out her demon, it was not a lack of compassion. It was, a, it was an act of discernment. An act of discernment. He knew that God could force that demon to depart that slave girl at any time. It did not depend upon Paul. God is in complete control of the demonic realm apart from man. Paul also knew she had made her masters much profit. Paul demonstrates he didn't need to get distracted into every side battle that goes on around us. Those things that are going on uh, that we have little control over. But when she had finally annoyed him enough, he exercised his apostolic authority and removed her demon. 
But God is not dependent upon us as Christians to main control, remain, uh, maintain control of rogue demons. God's in control of demons, folks. You might ask, what do I believe, myself personally, what do I believe I would do if I found myself in a situation where I was forced to act on someone possessed by a demon or act on behalf of someone that's possessed by a demon? If a parent cried out for their child who was being tormented and cast into the fire, getting thrown into the fire by that demon, or a raging demon-possessed man who was naked and breaking his chains and cast away from the city and crying out from the tombs, like we see in Scripture. I have not ever encountered that, by the way. But what would I do? What would I personally do? You'll have to come back next week when we go through the passage verse by verse and look at Jesus and I'll share with you what I believe I would do. But before I call the men up to distribute the Lord's Supper, I'd like to briefly dispel, dispel a potential argument about this. If Christ only delegated this power to his apostles, did any others actually possess power over demons to exercise them? What about the Jewish exorcists or others? What about the man in Luke 9, verse 49, who the disciples saw casting out demons in Jesus' name and they tried to prevent him because he did not follow along with Jesus? Did that guy really cast out demons even though Jesus had not granted him the authority to cast out demons? You know, that passage is just two verses long. That passage gives us very little information other than that man did not follow the teaching of Jesus or the disciples. Then it gives us the other point that at least it appeared to the human eye that he was, the disciples' eye, that he was displaying powers over demons. In fact, Mark 9 even states he was performing a miracle in Jesus' name. And how about in Matthew 12, verse 27, when Jesus is accused by the Pharisees of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, and Jesus responds to them, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So is Jesus suggesting then that their sons actually had the power to cast out demons as well? And since I declared that Jesus had to delegate these powers to his disciples, what then could be occurring in these other situations? Were they casting out demons? I honestly don't think so. See, how do I come to that? Here's my take. You can decide if you agree. You can email me this week. The man casting out demons who didn't follow Jesus and the disciples' teaching was categorically a false prophet. He did not follow the teaching of Jesus and the disciples. False prophet. Matthew 7 assures us that many false prophets will do miracles in Jesus' name. 
And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, I never knew you. So I don't think the man actually was casting out demons. I think the disciples saw him imitating the casting out of demons. Much as Pharaoh's magicians did, the sorcerers in Pharaoh's court who imitated Moses and the serpents, the magicians. That's my thought. You can disagree. We have false prophets today claiming miracles all the time. In Jesus' name. But he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. The lesson is when we come across situations like these, whether you believe they actually were casting out demons, this man, or not, the lesson is for us when we come across situations like these, Jesus simply says, do not hinder them. Someone who does a miracle in my name can't quickly speak bad against it. Um, It's not our responsibility to get distracted by rooting out all the false teachers in town. It's not our responsibility. We are to preach the gospel and let what goes on go on. As for the sons of the Pharisees, by whom or by what power did they cast out demons? It obviously wasn't by the power of Jesus' name. We know that. Um, I think they're very much like Siva's seven sons, Jewish exorcists who were faking it. Faking it. If Siva's sons, or Seva, however you want to pronounce that, if Siva's sons had previously enjoyed success in exorcisms, they wouldn't have adjusted their tactics to now invoke the name of Jesus and Paul. It's more likely because of their inability to cast out demons that they attempted to invoke the names of Jesus and Paul. How then do we explain this statement by Jesus to the Pharisees? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Were their sons casting out demons? I think Jesus may be speaking to them sarcastically about their failure to cast out demons. Jesus is actually the one enjoying success in the ministry, and therefore he faces criticism for his success in what he's doing. Have you ever been criticized for serving God? I think probably everyone here who's a true believer has. You know, you know in Pastor Weiler's family... When he was uh, young, he traveled with a musical family. They went all around the East Coast and other things. And one time in Pennsylvania, he could tell you the story better. Great story. Um, They encountered a sound booth technician at a church they were guests at. And he was enduring criticism for his ministry. Enduring criticism for the way he set up the sound booth, the way that he did things, the sound system. I don't know all the details. I even hear that the statement is originally attributed to D.L. Moody, the great evangelist. But when asked by Gerald and his brothers about how he responds to the criticism of ministry in a sound booth, the technician replied like this, I just tell him, I like the way I'm doing it better than the way you ain't doing it. The perfect comeback whenever you're criticized in ministry. I like the way I'm doing it better than the way you ain't doing it. The ones who aren't serving criticize the ones who are. It may be that Jesus is sarcastically replying 
concerning his exorcisms versus the failures of the Jewish exorcists. If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast out demons? He's saying, I like the way I'm doing it better than the way your guys ain't doing it. The other reason I come to that conclusion is I don't think those others enjoyed the success in exercising demons, but probably faked it, and here's why. The primary reason I come to that conclusion is that when Christ finally arrives on the scene, a man who actually now has authority over all demons, the Son of God, I don't think that God the Father would have permitted the Jewish exorcists to demonstrate the same authority as his son. You follow me? That would have caused too much confusion concerning Christ's identity as the son. I don't think God would have permitted that, here is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then Jesus be displaying the same power of what their exorcists had been doing all along. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think Christ was very distinct when it came to handling demons. He just wasn't doing what the Jewish exorcists were doing already. God wouldn't have allowed that. What we repeatedly see though in Scripture is Satan and false prophets repeatedly trying to imitate the authority that only Jesus and his apostles possessed. They're always trying to imitate God. Satan wanted to be God. Their exorcisms were false. And I think we have more evidence of that in our scripture reading from Acts chapter 19 that I read to you before, and I'll read just a small portion in a moment. But first I'm going to ask the men to come forward to serve the Lord's Supper. Next week we'll find that Christ not only has the power to cast out demons, but they, the demons, also feared his authority to cast them into the abyss, his authority to cast them into hell. Likewise, to men, Jesus says this, My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one after he has killed who has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, Jesus says, fear him. That's to us. And like the demons, we're warned to fear God in hell. Folks, Jesus tells us to fear God in hell. And I discussed this topic of hell last week in a conversation with a man in Dallas. And he said, you know, I just don't think God would send a person to hell if they've never had an opportunity to hear about Jesus. Then I shared with him that people do not go to hell because they fail to hear about or accept Jesus as Savior. That's not why people go to hell. Scripture says people everywhere will be cast into hell because they have sinned. And their sin has separated them and offended the Holy One of God, the holy and true living God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, it's inconsequential, folks, 
if you never heard the gospel or the name of Christ proclaimed, the native in the jungle is as guilty of his sin as the banker on Wall Street. All have sinned. All are guilty. It doesn't matter if you've heard of or rejected Christ. God as the righteous judge has the authority and the standing and I would say the obligation and duty to punish your sin. But God loved the world so much that he gave his only beloved son. He sent him into the world to live a sinless, perfect life that you and I have not. And Christ went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. And any who receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. That's what God has done for us. And those who become sons and daughters of God, the Most High God, we shall dwell with him throughout eternity. Christ's body was beaten. He was bloodied. His shed was sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sins. And he bore our sins in his body on the cross. The Lord's Supper commemorates that event. The most holy and divine act of Christ's substitution on your behalf. If you believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, we invite you to commemorate his death and his resurrection with us. Anthony, would you pray before distributing the bread?